I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Ina Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Emily Jashinsky. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, today we've got four compelling topics. I'm going to lead us off discussing China's trial balloon. Emily is going to take us through last night's State of the Union address. Josh will cover America's drug overdose epidemic. And then Inez will take us home by talking about some of the DeSantis slash Chris Rufo driven directed reforms in Florida concerning education, university education in particular. Uh, so with that, let's jump to the major news story really over the last several days, which was this Chinese spy balloon that was able to fly over the entirety of the U.S. unmolested by U.S. forces until it hit over the coast of South Carolina, at which point we shot it out of the sky. Uh, now, this balloon flying over America's airspace and violating our sovereignty, violating international law, as Biden administration officials themselves noted, came amid warnings recently from U.S. officials that Xi Jinping had instructed his troops to prepare for taking Taiwan by 2027, uh, as well as warnings from one U.S. general that war with China was likely to be coming by 2025. Now, the to the balloon itself, first of all, it was laughable. As Chinese authorities tried to claim this was a weather balloon that simply flew off course, uh, which was essentially contradicted by everything that we know about its capabilities, um, the, the nature of the balloon itself, its size, past reporting, uh, including reporting from the Financial Times that I thought was really interesting, that back in 2018, China had revealed that its military had used stratospheric balloons, which could be used actually to uh, deliver hypersonic missiles. And moreover, these the kinds of balloons that were flown over to the U.S., could also be used to deliver an EMP, which would have catastrophic consequences and potentially could lead to millions or tens of millions or more of casualties in America. Now, you know, obviously there's the, you know, an immediate reaction of you have an adversary flying a military vehicle over your shores. And that's a provocation for one thing, a violation of our sovereignty. Obviously, China probably intended to probe and prod as a consequence of flying this balloon over our homeland. We know that they went over sensitive military facilities, including nuclear sites. Uh, and, and, and But I think that the Biden administration's reaction is even more telling. And the obvious response that everyone has made is, well, look, this, is, this was a massive act of appeasement in the face of aggression where you have this aircraft, uh, this, this vehicle rather, soaring over American soil really only become a national matter because civilians on the ground in Montana saw it. And the reaction of the administration is to say, well, we're not going to shoot it down there, but actually let it complete essentially a spy mission across the U.S. and then shoot it out of the sky. But I think perhaps even more telling were the shifting responses from the administration. And there are kind of five core questions I'm going to write about this that I think the whole mission raises for us that we ought to consider. And, you know, I'd be interested to hear if you anyone here has any responses to these questions or what your general impressions of this whole saga, shameful saga addressed with one line indirectly by Joe Biden during the State of the Union last night, by the way. But 
Would the administration have ever shot down the balloon if it had not been seen by civilians on the ground? And Bloomberg reported initially that the Biden administration wanted to keep this on the down low, I believe was Bloomberg's reporting terms, lest it upend this coming meeting between Antony Blinken and Xi Jinping. So that implies that the politics were the first consideration of the administration, not the national security implications. But would it have shot down the balloon if Americans hadn't seen it? And Biden has subsequently claimed we would have. Uh, but obviously, I think the initial reporting rings consistent with what was coming out of the mouths of administration officials early on. Now, why did the Biden administration let the balloon traverse the entire U.S. before shooting it down? The reason I think it's laughable that they claim to care about casualties here is that reporting or that that sort of message from the White House came out when it was over Montana, one of the sparsely populated, most sparsely populated states in the union. Meanwhile, we shot it down over the sea, which obviously leads to a massive area where debris could be located, probably arguably harder to recover that contents and study it than if it had been done in over, say, an open field somewhere or another open area of land in the U.S. Beyond that, what did General Milley know? When did he know it? And what, if anything, did he communicate to his Chinese counterparts? Huge question. You know, were these previously previous balloon breaches originally said to have happened under the Trump administration, which Trump administration officials themselves unanimously stated they had never heard about. Were those really undetected in real time or not? Or was information being concealed from superiors by subordinates, perhaps so as to not rattle, shake you know, the administration into taking more provocative or aggressive positions with respect to China? Massive question. And last but not least, could the U.S. military have captured the balloon or otherwise intercepted and brought it down while leaving it unscathed as opposed to shooting it down out of the sky we, and thereby damaging it and creating this massive recovery effort? All questions, initial questions to my mind, but I'm interested to hear what yours are and what your impressions are as well. So a few thoughts on this. So first of all, when this story first broke, I, I did like a double take. I mean, the word balloon is just such an odd balloon to use to describe this sort of thing. And, you know, because I'm an editor and I work in the English language, this is kind of borderline conspiratorial, but I couldn't help but think that the commentary of the chattering classes is kind of throwing out of the word balloon was maybe kind of an intentional effort to try to make Americans think that this was less insidious than they otherwise might have thought. I mean, it just connotes like a much lower degree of kind of worry than if they called like a, like a spy ship or a, a UFO type of thing or something like that. I mean, again, that's like borderline conspiratorial, but that was, that was one of my first thoughts when this story first started to break. Another thing that I thought a lot about was, you know, initially when those residents in Montana, I think were kind of the first ones to report to their local newspaper, you know, as Ben rightly says, I mean, if the local residents hadn't seen this literal ufo unidentified flying object flying at sixty thousand feet altitude with the naked eye if they had not reported then who knows if we would have ever learned about this but I, I initially after those first local papers kind of got this story out there the line that we heard from the u.s military's spokespeople was that they couldn't shoot it down because it might risk debris on the ground I, I simply do not believe that. I, I, I mean, I literally do not believe that. I mean, this country put a man on the moon, what, 50 plus years ago now, and we can't shoot an airship, like like a literal kind of floating thing at 60,000 foot altitude safely out of the sky. I mean, it just beggars the imagination. I mean, missile defense is a real thing in today's day and age. Look at Iron Dome in Israel. They're, they're literally intercepting rockets and safely landing them in abandoning fields. And we can't, the most advanced country in the world can't shoot this thing down 
safely over sparsely populated Montana, Wyoming, Dakotas, Idaho, whatever. I mean, it just it, it literally just does not make sense. And I and I'm almost certain that we were being lied to. I guess the, the final thing that I'll say, we have a really nice piece up at Newsweek from our friend Paul DeQuina of the Palm Beach Freedom Institute. And what Paul does is he spends kind of the first half of his op-ed kind of drawing, drawing a very kind of colorful parallel between a somewhat similar incident that happened in the Soviet Union in 1987 when a young 18-year-old West German pilot by the name of Matthias Rust um, he flew kind of a single engine Cessna and he basically went to Helsinki, Finland from West Germany and then continued into Moscow. And the Soviets knew that this little German guy was in this stupid little plane. They didn't do anything. And it, they didn't do anything so much so that Russ, he, he landed the plane on a bridge like a mile or two from Red Square. And he ended up getting four years sentenced in prison in some gulag, served like a year and a half. The point. The point is that the fact that the Soviets did nothing, this is kind of 1987, Gorbachev as well into his reforms, was considered to be a major blight in a declining late stage empire. And, you know, I'll leave the viewers to kind of draw their conclusions from there. Well, and the Washington Post reported this week, and, you know, you always have to be wary of American intelligence sources these days, as we have uh, learned the hard way, but that this is part of a broader surveillance campaign on behalf of the People's Liberation Army. Um, and that's, I think, there some of the, the big story right now about this to me is all of the open questions. Ben listed some of them, but why is it the case? We still do not have a good answer for why it's the case that the Biden administration is saying this happened under Trump all of these Trump administration officials, everyone from Keith Kellogg to Rick Grinnell is coming out and saying, we had no idea about any of this. Uh, if it happened, we weren't briefed on it. There's tons of officials who have now come out and said that. Um, so just what they knew, what they knew when this was crossing into our airspace before it was crossing into our airspace. Um, so many open questions about the decision to wait until it had already surveilled all of uh, this, these military sites. It took the exact path that you would take if you were trying to surveil military sites. So, I, I mean, the, the big story for me is just how many questions remain about the way we handled this um, going forward, because it just makes absolutely no sense. And they're able to hide under the cloak of uh, you know, intelligence and military intelligence and, and all of that. But uh, just on its face, it seems very, very weak. It seems to be projecting more weakness than anything. And it seems that um, we we uh, lost the upper hand in this particular skirmish. But I'll toss it to Inez. Yeah, I know we're, we're wrapping up this segment in terms of time, but uh, just, just one or two thoughts here. One, you know, Josh is exactly right. You know, clear fields are such a, a hard commodity to come by in, in uh, Montana and Wyoming, right? Like, this is this is just really blatant lying. I don't even think we need to sort of do the hedging that we normally do because some of these stories are, are complicated. This is an obvious lie from the administration. This is not why they, they didn't shoot it down. Um, you know, I, to the extent that Joe Biden talked about this again, and I think we can transition into the next segment to talk about the State of the Union with Emily, but um, it, it really struck me how unserious the State of the Union was. And that's not a unique thing. Um, we have had an unserious politics for quite some time. Uh, but yeah, this the, the fact that this and generally our posture towards China garnered maybe two sentences in this very long speech. Uh, and those two sentences were sort of triumphalist happy talk. 
um, really contrasts with with I think what Josh is rightly pointing to is is Emily as well. But this is this is really a, a show of weakness against our greatest geopolitical rival that is quite important. And the fact that it, it was only a throwaway in the State of the Union is just one of many um, one of many reasons not to take uh, our politics very seriously. Well, speaking of the State of the Union address, uh, it is true. President Biden briefly alluded to the balloon in a very small section about China. Um, he also didn't talk much about Ukraine in his State of the Union address last night. It was front loaded with uh, the economy. Uh, there was a lot of by American. There was a lot of reference to his, quote, Republican friends. There's basically nothing on immigration and the border. There's also fairly light on culture issues, just a, a brief section on Roe v. Wade, which was the predictable uh, you know, pro-abortion nonsense, um, and a, a mention of young transgender people. Again, it was brief. It was mentioned, uh, and I think that's still important, but it was brief. This was a speech that was focused on Biden sort of trumpeting his uh, perceived accomplishments. He has passed lots and lots of legislation and lots and lots of spending, uh, and so I I think there was there was a line where he mentioned, you know, maybe people aren't feeling it all yet because the Inflation Reduction Act, some of it didn't go into effect until January 1. Uh, so uh, there was an optimistic tone. It was heavily, heavily focused on the economy. Um, there were interruptions when he talked about fentanyl. Uh, for instance, uh, Republicans, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene and some others stood up and basically started saying, you know, the border, the border, which is not a subject that Joe Biden addressed. Uh, the uh, pundits afterwards were very upset about decorum. Uh, they were talking a lot about decorum. Uh, Biden had another line where he said Republicans want to cut Social Security and Medicare. And uh, that was also Republicans sort of all groaned and, and exclaimed in unison and got into a little back and forth with Biden where he said, contact my office if you need to look it up. Um, and that was also, you know, a moment for him where he felt, you know, he, you could tell he, he felt he had a little bit of swagger. Um, oddly enough, uh, Jill Biden appeared to kiss Doug Emhoff on the lips. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in the, uh, the, much hyped sort of entrance uh, video that we get from the network. So someone picked up on that, still very weird and unexplained, uh, but really neither here nor there. Um, Charlie Kirk had an interesting tweet today. He was saying that he had been texting with um, uh, Pedro. Um, I was just gonna call him by his Twitter handle, but um, he had been <laughs> texting with Pedro back and forth saying, this is uh, was a speech um, that sounded almost like an America first speech. And I know some people might disagree with that. I do agree with that. Um, and I'd be curious what Pedro Gonzalez said in response, because it is true that Biden was talking about buy America, buy America, this is gonna be made in America, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And he was really leaning into um, what seemed like that maybe normal Americans perspective on where the country should be. And instead of grappling with some of the, the faults or trying to lean into them, um, he just kind of tried to push all of the Democratic Party's vulnerabilities away and not even talk about them or mention them. Um, and instead just give this sort of positive optimistic speech about how um, you know, we're going to bring pride back to America. That was one of the most, uh, he, he said, build back pride, which made me, of course, think of the Raytheon 
um, ad, uh, the, the Raytheon Pride ad that uh, some folks might remember. But again, neither here nor there. Um, we're having a, we have a Democratic president talking about restoring pride in America, buying things in America. Um, and of course, I don't really believe much of that coming from him. And I don't know that his policies are all that serious. But let me toss it open to the group on that note. Um, was, was Joe Biden trying to project an image of America first? We all know that that's not where he actually stands. But is that what... Uh, could be interpreted from last night's State of the Union? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here. I, I completely agree. I, I think this was a good speech for Joe Biden. I think it's a successful speech in that it projects a whole bunch of things that are actually quite popular with the American people, downplayed or lied about all of the extremely unpopular and radical things that his administration is doing. Um, I do think that Biden is probably the last Democrat who can do this sort of labor economics 90 shtick. Um, even even as his actual administration is focusing on cultural radicalism. And just to give one example, redefining uh, the word woman or sex in federal law through uh, regulatory means, right? Um, these are very unpopular culturally radical ideas that his administration is actually executing. But this speech was focused on essentially labor economics. Um, and I think he might be the last Democrat who can do that. And if only for the reason that I can't imagine any of the next generation of Democrats giving the culture war stuff such short shrift, especially with the realignment of the Democratic Party into what I would roughly describe as sort of the two power pillars behind the Democratic Party, one being the Fortune 500 corporations um, and the other being the professional managerial class that cares very, very much about these cultural issues and sort of wokeism and is kind of quiet when it comes to uh, traditional sort of labor economics of the Democratic Party. So um, I really do think Joe Biden is probably the last of this breed of Democrat or the it's hard to even say that because I don't think Joe Biden believes anything. I mean, he's always been kind of at the center of his party. And as that center has moved left, so has he. Um, so it's not so much that he has a strong worldview or vision, but he's the last one who actually at least still understands that this is the part of the Democratic Party platform that is actually popular and that the cultural stuff is very, very unpopular. Um, just one more note on that. I mean, he outright lied about a lot of these issues, right? Um, he said, for example, that the crime spike is due to the pandemic, and then he swiftly transitioned into a very moderate seeming uh, talk about how we need to make some reforms to the police, no defunding the police here, but like the police are generally good people, right? Um, this is a complete contradiction to what others in his party are or in the policies that they actually want to implement. But again, it goes along very well with that lead with the economic labor platform. And then say reasonable sounding sort of reform minded things on culture that won't go nearly far enough for the next generation of the Democratic Party. He had one line on trans kids, right, um, which he had to stick in there, as Emily notes, and I think that isn't a nod to the more uh, the rising sort of faction and power in the Democratic Party, but he did not focus on that. I was surprised that he barely mentioned his loan forgiveness program, but that's, again, smart because that is outside of the professional managerial class, very unpopular, right? It's it's uh, He kind of downplayed everything that would be popular with this sort of woke professional managerial type um, base of his party and actually made a broader appeal to the average American voter. Um and just, just one more point um, that, that I'll wrap it up. I know I'm, I'm going long here, but uh, it, in the news today, there's a lot of ridiculous pearl clutching about the interruption, 
right? Um, about this back and forth. By the way, I thought Biden actually turned it to his advantage. He looked jovial while he was doing this, and it looked like more of a call and response. Um, so I don't think it hurt him at all. If anything, I think it helped Joe Biden that that there were these interruptions. But it's it's ridiculous to to sort of pearl clutch about this kind of of interruption in the State of the Union as though this were a serious State of the Union, and as though, for example, to pick one uh, uh, sort of um, decline moment out of many. Um, the FBI wasn't politically, you know, engaging in political prosecution outside of apparently the the political control of the president, right? Like, so it, it's a little ridiculous uh, in this day and age to be to be pearl clutching about the interruptions. But um, there there is a, a not insignificant portion of conservative media today that is more upset that that you know Marjorie Marjorie Taylor Greene interrupted the State of the Union than the fact that there were more words about resort fees than about. Uh, our major geopolitical rival, China, in this speech. So anyway, that's my two cents. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let everybody else have a word in. Not not to mention there was more talk about maintaining U- Ukraine's sovereignty than America's sovereignty after this balloon soared over our country. Uh, and of course, no mention of the open borders. And to your small point on the uh, crime spike, he also limited the mention of the crime spike to 2020, but neglected to mention what happened in 2021 and 2022 and today as well. Um, You know, I think it's interesting to juxtapose last night's speech with the speech at Constitution Hall. Uh, It's very clear that Biden's handlers wanted to make a pointedly lay it out a contrast in not trying to portray his opponents as domestic terrorists, for the most part anyway, although the insurrection was mentioned at least once, I believe. And he he de-emphasized the wokeness as well. And I think what that tells you is Biden's rhetoric going into the midterms was aimed at driving out leftist base, which is more animated in a midterm election. But this was a 2024 speech, in my view. And that's clearly about trying to ensure that he maintains uh, the kind of John Fetterman voter in Pennsylvania or maybe a swing voter in a, in a place like that or Rust Belt states. Uh, that he would need to carry the country again in 2024. So I think the key line from Inez was it was a good speech for Joe Biden. Uh, I laughed at that that line. Uh, this was a campaign speech, albeit an incoherent and incomprehensible one. I think he was characteristically goofy, angry, and just weird when it came to that resort fees. I wonder who inserted the line about the resort fees and uh, who, what constituency they were speaking for with that one. And the last minor point I'll make is one of the things I found particularly disgusting on the Democrat side was, I don't know if you all saw, but Ed Markey and some others as well had these abortion pins, these pins literally saying abortion with, I think, a heart for the O. That is where we are. That is where our purported leaders are today, celebrating, openly celebrating and championing abortion as a practice. I think it tells you all you need to know about where Democrats are. All right. So I will briefly comment on the rest of the speech and then kind of just transition to our next segment, which is kind of focusing on a small part of the speech that stood out to me. Um, So I probably should just say that I missed most of the speech. Um, I caught the final 15 minutes, which was more than enough. Um, I saw him try to sound triumphalist on China and say that we will stand up to the Chinese threat, which, as we just discussed in the first segment of the show, is farcical beyond any for any measurable quantity that he would have the gumption to be able to say that after what would just happen with the airship balloon, whatever we're calling it. Um, I do have to say that it was ironic to me and, you know, our, our dearly departed colleague, uh, dearly departed from the show still in this realm, Rachel Bovard, I think we get a kick out of what I'm about to say here, but nothing kind of exemplifies to me 
the nature of kind of the DC uniparty more than the following. So the reason that I actually missed most of the speech live is I'm here in Chicago for a few speaking events and I tag team with a former US uh, acting US attorney friend of mine from Texas last night. We did a joint event on America's under incarceration problem. And I kind of ended my remarks with kind of an extended kind of riff on qualified immunity and kind of the idiocy of police reform and how we have all these useful coke funded libertarian idiots on our side of the aisle who are all up a kind of, um, you know, on the moral high ground of kind of qualified immunity is bad, reigning in. And I get back to my hotel room and I'm catching up on the speech. And it seems to me that one of the great kind of bipartisan, everyone's clapping moments was to call for some sort of amorphous police reform. So, you know, I, I had to get that off my chest because it's just so ridiculous. But I will use this now to kind of transition to my own segment, which is kind of picking up on one of the things that I did see when I got back to my hotel room last night, which is Joe Biden was talking about fentanyl and America's drug overdose crisis. And it is an absolute crisis. And this is an issue that I have become increasingly personally passionate about over the past few years for a reason that I have spoken about publicly a little bit. Uh, but um, so I, I tragically had a cousin, one of my closest cousins, I was very close with him, actually, who overdosed and died. We don't know to this day. Um, I, I don't know at least whether it was straight fentanyl, fentanyl laced something else. I don't know the details of this. Um, it was one of the worst days in my entire life. I was with my immediate family in Pearl Harbor. We were on vacation out in Hawaii. It was like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. Hawaii time. Got a call from relatives in Boston that this had happened. Um, so Joe Biden last night starts talking about how we need to do more to prevent fentanyl into this country. And you know, I, my friend Seth Leibson, who's a Phoenix, Arizona-based radio host, who was admirably outspoken on this particular issue, had a wonderful op-ed that I would like to flag for the listeners and viewers of this podcast for the Washington Times a few weeks ago called anesthetizing ourselves to death. And what he basically said was that America hit a new high, really a new low, with the latest kind of drug czar statistics. A lot of people forget that we still have kind of a drug czar in this country. Um, and, and the statistic that I would like to toss out there that Seth emphasizes is that 14.3% of Americans last year apparently were using some sort of illegal or dangerous narcotic, which is the highest number that has been since I think we first started keeping tabs on this in 1979. And, you know, Nancy Reagan in the 1980s had the whole just say no campaign. There's this kind of mythology that I think kind of the left with with, again, the, the kind of useful idiot libertarians who have joined forces with them. There's kind of this whole mythology that the, the so-called war on drugs has failed. You know, we are incarcerating more people. Really, you know, the data are much more mixed on that, right? So, uh, you know, drug use, drug overdoses declined from that 14.1% number in 1979 all the way to 5,000 overdose deaths annually by the 1990s after kind of a solid decade of Bill Bennett, who famously, of course, was part of the so-called Reagan era war on drugs. So 5,000 drug overdose deaths annually by the 1990s. The number last year, as Seth leaps and flags on this Washington Times op-ed, 106,000. It went from 5,000 drug overdoses in the early 1990s annually to 106,000. You know, if you divide that number by 365 days of the year, it's nearly 300 people. There is basically a mid-sized airplane crashing every day of disproportionately young people dying when it comes to this crisis. And Joe Biden, to his credit, talks about it. But it, he doesn't have the slightest clue that his policies, especially when it comes to the border in particular, are dramatically exacerbating this crisis. And it's just, it's just remarkable to me, just either the disingenuousness or just the failure to connect the obvious dots 
when it comes to this, you know, historically unprecedented surge of the border and the cartels and the drugs just running in here and drug overdose deaths. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess if I had to kind of just con conclude on a note and I'm just throw it open to you guys for your response there, I guess from a from a NatCon, from a more like nationalist perspective here, you know, I think it's time basically to double down on the so-called war on drugs. Um, a, a, we should hotly rebut and contest the premise that the so-called war on drugs was an adamant failure. And I think the natural corollary to that is that we would do well to kind of directly connect border security to reining in America's catastrophic drug overdose epidemic. Border security is important for many other reasons, obviously. It's not just important for this reason. But, you know, I, if there's one policy that I think you could do to try to get this these drug numbers down, you know, it would be just getting the freaking cartels out of this damn country. So um, I, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox on that note. Um I'm curious if any of you guys, uh, you know, picked up on Biden's fentanyl comments. Um, what What do you thought about that particular aspect of the speech? Well, I think it's incredible to mention fentanyl and not have a serious border policy. I mean, it is just one of the most disgusting, um, it, it just cynical things a politician can do at this point. Because now cartels have discovered that they can basically manufacture fentanyl. They don't even need to ship fentanyl from China. They may still need to ship some of the precursor chemicals to it, um, but they don't even need to ship the fentanyl directly into Mexico. They have learned how to manufacture fentanyl on their own. And every single person that is being shepherded um, actually, that's the wrong word. Uh, herded like cattle up through Central America and to America's southern border because they know they can get in. Um, maybe it, it'll take some time and some logistical pains and some sleeping on the street, but they know ultimately their odds of getting in are extremely high. Um, with every single person, they are lining cartels' pockets. They the cartels are exploiting desperation. And for Joe Biden to talk about fentanyl and not talk about um, how many of these migrants are uh, blackmailed into bringing fentanyl into the country um, before and after as they're crossing initially and then after they're crossing, I mean, it's just completely cynical and disgusting because that is frankly how, how fentanyl is getting into the country. And the last thing I'll say is, um, one discordant note, you know, I think Biden did give a good speech, I think, and as is right, but there was really nothing about technology in general. He had a great line that I think he's used before about uh, ending Silicon Valley's long experiment on American children. Great point. Um, but in general, we do have a, a huge spike in uh, overdose deaths and using specifically because um, there's there, there is an anesthetization of life available to many people, as Josh said, um, and people are in pain, even though they're living comfortably. And that's something that hasn't totally crept into the political discourse yet that I think really should be dealt with. And, and nobody's picked up on it. You hear a little from J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley, um, and that's promising. But um, I think discordant probably to a lot of millennials and um, you know Gen Z people who, who just, it doesn't even really, the, that normal sort of buy American, build American thing doesn't relate to their American experience right now. Um, yeah, just just a few points. Um, one, you know, to Josh's point, the 1994 crime bill was extremely popular. Uh, the the disparate sentences for crack versus powder cocaine were extremely popular, actually, with the black community. And now we talk about all of these um, 
you know, all of these these war on drugs kind of policies as though they had no antecedent, no purpose and, and no efficacy. Um, while there were some things that I think were very ineffective about the war on drugs, actually, some of the things were quite effective and we should be not afraid of looking at them and not buying into a leftist frame about some of these these bills um, and, and these these uh, tech uh, tactics that were used during the last major drug epidemic period of the United States, which is the late 1970s into the into the 1980s. Um, another sort of uh, unfortunate point to throw in: yes, it's very important. Obviously, the trafficking, everything that that um, Emily just laid out about the power of, of the cartels, is definitely true. Um, there is a bit of uh, this this epidemic taking on a life of its own, though, because this this um, this drug fentanyl is so potent. It's going to be very, very difficult to stop it. Um, you know, we can maybe make a dent, but it's going to be very, very difficult to stop it from coming into the United States because a pocket full of this drug is enough to overdose a city, right? There's just there's there's a physical sort of element to this that you don't need very much. You don't need to make very much because this thing is so incredibly strong, which is also why it's co causing so many overdose deaths. Um, and I, I think it's very odd that we almost never talk about this, but it's pretty clear to me that the Chinese government sees this as vengeance for the opium wars, uh, that, that sending fentanyl to the United States and starting this kind of epidemic in the United States uh, fits very, very much into how they think about their history with the West. I just never hear anybody talking about or making that point, <laughs> um, which I think is kind of odd. Um, and then finally, I, I agree with Emily. Um, I do think we are sort of grappling with a, a sort of Nietzschean or Dostoevskian problems now uh, in, in sort of what might be called the, the end point of modernity. I think we're grappling with a lot of those same problems with regard to the MAID program um, in, in uh, Canada and then also in, of course, France, Belgium, et cetera, et cetera, and in 10 U.S. states. Um, I think a lot of these these questions are more existential. They are pre-political. Uh, we, we are as a society, we don't understand what our purpose is and we don't can't really muster the vitality or the arguments to defend human life. Um, and it's most fundamental. So uh, those are bigger concerns. But I do think this is going to continue to be a very, very, very difficult problem for the U.S. to grapple with. But we're not even trying. It's not really even in our discourse, despite the fact that Joe Biden, you know, had a few things to say about it at the State of the Union. We're not actually seriously taking any of the steps to even mitigate this problem. So I'll be really brief. This is a an incredibly damning issue for Joe Biden because, as has been elucidated here, the key elements of the fentanyl crisis in terms of the supply, at least, are one, open borders, and two, China, two issues where Joe Biden is totally derelict, China being, by the way, at least historically, the primary producer and exporter of fentanyl and illicit fentanyl. Beyond that, I think you have just a... a numerous events and trends that all are kind of coming together here and fueling mass death in America. So you have, generally speaking, down to marijuana itself, substantially harder and more addictive drugs than we've ever had before. Then you also have a more permissive culture that encourages essentially people killing themselves, in many cases in taxpayer-funded ways where you have these so-called safe spaces for drug usage subsidized by all of us. Then when you add on top of it, of course, the collapse of the family, decline in faith and the like, it's a perfect storm that is coming to its worst kind of fruition under a Joe Biden administration, which again is totally derelict on the main contributors uh, to the scourge of the fentanyl epidemic. And with that, I'd turn it back to Inez. 
Yeah, um, I, I'd like to use my segment this time to talk about some developments that happened um, in Florida in the education space immediately after we recorded our um, last episode. So I was just kicking myself that <laughs> I couldn't talk about it in the last episode. So I want to talk about it now. Um, there's some really exciting developments in Florida. Uh, in key part, the appointments of Christopher Rufo, Matt Spaulding, and a few other um, conservative stalwarts to the leadership of the new College of Florida. Um, and this in itself might might just be a, a generator of, of hilarious videos where you have, you know, Chris Rufo calmly telling a 65-year-old administrator, vice president, whatever that she's at. She's completely hysterical just upon hearing uh that that you know any of any of Chris Rufo's views i mean it's it's embarrassing that our society has gotten to the point where this woman 60 something year old woman thinks like it's not embarrassing to her to behave like a toddler um when having a political discussion but but that's neither here nor there i think it represents something very important about the blueprint going forward uh, the plan going forward that that gives me honestly is kind of the only thing that gives me much hope about our politics and that is this, this very direct application of political power to institutional strongholds of the left in Florida. Um, this, this appointment is obviously a political appointment. It's a power that the governor has, um, but it has never actually been used in this way to just recognize what universities actually are. The ground zero essentially for training leftist, leftist act, uh, activists that then go out into all these other institutions, um, whether it's the DOJ or FBI, um, or whether it's the Fortune 500, right? But to actually directly challenge leftist power, not in this kind of flaccid way of having, oh, like let's have a let's appoint one conservative professor and create a little study center within this leftist hegemony, but actually to use political power um, to appoint people who will start to dismantle that culture and that power within the university. I think that is very encouraging, especially as it comes after. Um, immediately after rejecting the, the AP African-American Studies AP exam um, and, and curriculum guide in Florida, uh, which forced College Board, which is a very, very woke organization, to reformulate uh, the test. Um, it looks like they're going to have to bend to Florida's legitimate application of political power saying, yeah, this we're fine with African-American studies, but that's not what this is. This is, you know, this is CRT. This is liberal ideology. Um, come back to us with with real history and we'll happily have your test. Um, again, the application of political power um, and rejecting the idea that it's <laughs> that it's somehow illegitimate for the right to use that kind of power when the left has been using it for 60 years. Um, eliminating uh, by law DEI bureaucracy funding for universities, smart reforms on tenure. There are many dumb reforms on tenure uh, that will actually backfire on the right, but this is done in a smart and, and uh, good forward-thinking, strategic way. So I think this is a really hopeful blueprint for education, um, especially higher education. And I just uh, also want to note that, of course, there were a series of attacks. Anything that's actually successful on the right will garner the sort of sniping attacks within the right and the center-left. Here, um, one of the main critics was Steven Pinker, who's sort of a, a left liberal. Um, and, and these attacks are just as incoherent as when they were mocking that, you know, one nut picked uh, Tea Party guy who had the sign that said, get your government off my Medicaid. Um, this is a public institution. It is supported and governed by the laws of the citizens of the state. There is nothing illegitimate about setting curriculum. And it's no more uh, uh, sort of illiberal. Uh, we can talk about whether it needs to be liberal or not. But even within the, the conception of liberalism, this would have been a completely ordinary application of power in any other circumstance. 
And um, just to flip it around, the people who say that, for example, Tanahisi Coates or, or Ibram Kendi will be banned um, if if their books are not part of the curriculum in a public university, well, then Thomas Sowell is banned now, right? This this is an absurd way of thinking about politics and and liberalism, um, and and frankly, democracy. This is well within the power of of uh, the political power as appropriately used by a state, and it gives me a lot of hope, honestly, uh, to see to see a Republican governor. My only question here is why doesn't every Republican governor do this? Um, this is an incredibly uh, forward-thinking and strategic set of policies that I would like to see every Republican governor adopt. And with that, I'll, I'll throw it out to everybody. Yeah, so I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I agree with every word that Inez said. I, I really don't have a whole lot to add, to be honest with you. I mean, yet again, Governor DeSantis kind of shows the way forward. I mean, he's he's very good at this, if you if you haven't picked up on it by now. But, you know, this is this is literally the playbook is, as, as Inez correctly says, is eschewing this reluctance that Republican elected officials have had for so long to actually use the power, to actually use the power that the people who elected you have vested you with. And in this case, to use that power to reward friends, where friends here is defined as people who kind of view the country, who view civics, who view the founding, who view America, frankly, the same way that you do. So using political power to reward friends, to recapture institutions that have previously been lost to the Gramscian long march through the institutions and try in this particular case, trying to kind of change the direction for what I think Inez in the past has has poetically referred to as one of my favorite things you've ever written. Inez has referred to as madrasas of wokeness, which is which is very much what higher ed is these days. So I I, I, I really don't have a whole lot to add. I agree with every word that, that, that Inez said here. This should be a, a, a fairly easy blueprint, by the way. I don't see what's particularly difficult, actually, about other Republican governors following on this lead here. Um, one note of caution that I will say, um, you know, I, I am very much rooting for this to succeed. I can I consider Chris Rufo a friend, you know, Charles Kessler, Matthew Spaulding. These, these are awesome people, frankly, that Governor DeSantis has tapped to kind of lead this new College of Florida reorienting crusade. The, the one thing that I will say, a note of caution, I did have one friend who was asked to be a trustee and thought about it and ended up declining, not because in any way he's not part of the mission or anything, but for the very simple and fairly kind of prosaic reason that Florida's so-called sunshine law, our law when it comes to transparency, when it comes to kind of government appointed meetings is incredibly draconian actually. Um, and this particular person thought that it would severely impede the mission. So I, I you know, I am a lawyer, I'm not barred in Texas, not Florida. So I don't have a whole lot of nitty gritty to kind of advise the, you know, the, these trustees about how to kind of get around perhaps some of the strictures of the sunshine law. But I'm just kind of letting or apprising the listeners and viewers that there is that possible hurdle that is in the path. Yeah, so I would just say that to any Republican executive who is not following this model, it's an obvious dereliction of duty not to defend your constituents and defend the country against an onslaught, particularly an onslaught against our most basic uh, rights, liberties, and justice through state institutions. That's the most perverse usage of those institutions. And obviously, the schools are the tip of the spear, and they perpetuate this cycle of institutions that hate our guts using our tax dollars. So I think there ought to be a a mission for every Republican, and, and this goes for legislatures as well as the executives for that matter, to prioritize the institutions that ought to be targeted 
determine what legislation absolutely must be passed, as well as what can be done using executive power, then the most efficacious way to target these institutions. And then beyond that, figure out how to make the changes durable and lasting. Because obviously, if you live by executive power, you can also very easily die by executive power. We also know that the courts are obviously corrupted up to the highest court in the land. In many cases, uh, Joe Biden, it's not talked about enough, the extent to which he has gotten his judges nominated and through the process at the federal level, which is going to create probably generational challenges for us going down the road as well. So these victories should be celebrated. Uh, they should be used as models in every single state in the nation. And then they should also be used by the next Republican president as well, where possible at the federal level. But we still do have all of these inbuilt disadvantages, which are going to have to be overcome. But nevertheless, acting in and of itself is a massive win and a response to a hundred year long march through the institutions that has basically been unimpeded, which is, by the way, why the savage onslaught against the likes of Governor DeSantis and the others is so savage. The left can't believe that Republicans would actually dare to fight back in any way. Uh, and their apoplectic response, I think, maybe betrays more weakness than we might otherwise think is out there, notwithstanding the fact that all these institutions are still horribly corrupted and in the hands of our worst adversaries. You know, there's a lot of work being done in D.C. to kind of lay the groundwork for a potential future Republican presidential administration. I see this in kind of the same vein. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of credit goes to Rufo for putting substance, um, some meat on the bones of a lot of ideas. And it actually kind of depresses me thinking back on the conservative movement, which obviously I believe has a lot of virtues. Um, but over the last several decades, that actionable stuff like this. Um, which is so obvious. It, it just is, it's heartening to see it sort of going into effect now. But I think there was a, an underestimation um, of how the institutions were being captured and how they needed to be sort of recaptured um, or how the, the territory needed to be fought for um, for a really long time. But the good news is this is actionable. It is easy. Uh, just yesterday, Wall Street Journal had a story about something happening at Texas schools. And I think immediately, like after the story came out, um, it was someone from the National Association of Scholars wrote about how they were using um, or abusing, I should say, DEI types of criteria it, it criteria in interviews uh, for like teaching assistants or faculty um, candidates. And I think like that was immediately investigated and looked into uh, in Texas. Like the stuff is 14. It's it's often violates the 14th Amendment in a very clear and obvious way. Um, it's extremely actionable. And uh, it's the, the more we see of this, the, the easier it is for that snowball to start rolling down the hill. So with that, uh, let's open it up to final thoughts. I guess I'm happy to kick it off here. Um, there's something that's flying under the radar that I think is actually quite important. Um, it, in so last week we had uh, some, some a joint resolution right between uh, actually Ariana Presley uh, and uh, Senator Ben Cardin uh, in the Senate. They they um, introduced a joint resolution declaring the Equal Rights Amendment um, essentially alive, right? Um, and and basically dissolving the congressional deadline and saying basically this amendment is ratified, right? There's no further action necessary. There's all kinds of political uh, and sorry procedural issues with that, uh, that that will go to the courts about the length of time over which you can ratify an amendment that remember most of the ratifications for this um, that fell short of the required 38 uh, 
35 of those, those uh, currently 38 quote unquote ratifications that activists are counting. Most of those happened uh, in the 1970s. Then you have this huge gap and you have um, a few states, three states successively starting in, in 2017 ratifying this amendment. Um, so there are all kinds of problems procedurally with this um, that will be fought out in the courts. Uh, but I still think it's really, really important to hit the, the substance of this. Um, this will basically raise in the most conservative interpretation, actually, um, there, there's some worse, worse downstream effects, but um, in the most conservative inter interpretation of this amendment, it'll raise sex discrimination to the same high scrutiny as race discrimination is uh, under, under the Constitution, uh, which is just going to be a disaster. So think about everything uh, that we're currently fighting about with, with, uh, with trans-identified males uh, coming into women's locker rooms, um, coming, com uh, moving into women's prisons. There have already been assaults in women's prisons by males uh, who have been moved there, right? Um, all of these, these kind of uh, the 200 meter butterfly and, and Leah Thomas, well, under um, the ERA, William Thomas could, he doesn't have to identify as anything. He would, I mean, the only thing that keeps men off the women's swim team in a public university is a discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, so unfortunately, our, our Supreme Court precedent is already quite expansive on sex discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause. Um, I, I would like to see some of that rolled back, uh, and I'd like, frankly, like to see sex dropped from from civil rights law. I think it's a totally inappropriate. It was initially a poison pill for civil rights law, and then it passed anyway. Um, but look, the sexes are biologically different. The law has to be able to recognize the situations in which that's relevant. Right now, there's still some wiggle room under a constitutional precedent for states to actually do that. Um, if the ERA were to pass, it would require that the law is blind to the differences between men and women, and that will have enormous negative effects for women and girls. So I just think it's worth keeping on your radar um, as, as Democrats move in, especially as this is the kind of issue, because it's it's about equal rights. It's the Equal Right Amendment, and uh, it's against sex discrimination. It's exactly the sort of issue that Republicans go weak need over. In fact, um, Susan Collins is a big proponent of the ERA, right? So there are already a lot of crossover Republicans. This is something that actually could pass with enough Republican votes, uh, even in some place like the House. So anyway, uh, it's worth keeping an eye on. All right. Well, I have like a super niche, like in the weeds kind of final thought that I was kind of waiting if someone had something a little like timely or or more or, or topical. Um, but I, I read a very interesting essay at the Law and Liberty site the other day from uh, Professor Randy Barnett, who is kind of the libertarian leading Georgetown law professor, along with Nelson Lund. And their essay was about the way that one of the somewhat kind of under the radar, more unheralded kind of landmark cases from last Supreme Court term, which was a very good term, obviously, um, has played out in the lower courts. I'm talking here about the, the landmark Second Amendment case, the Bruin case out of New York State. So part of the problem with Second Amendment gun rights litigation in general, uh, or, or at least in the aftermath of the court's two previous big decisions, the Heller case of 2008 and the McDonald case of 2010, part of the problem was that the lower courts would basically, uh, you know, in, in, in incredulous or disingenuous fashion, which would, would misapply it, or they would they would basically try to get like a results-oriented outcome that would allow, e.g. California to ban magazines over 10 rounds and all this other stuff that I think a more uh, plain reading of Heller McDonald would have outlawed. And apparently in the aftermath of Bruin, which came out last June, so it's been less than a year, 
there have there there has already been predictably some kind of lower court shenanigans. So the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit recently. Um, I, I don't remember the exact case name, but uh, Professor Barnett and Professor Lund have uh, they cite this as um, as one example of that. And the basic problem is that one thing that Bruin kind of prescribes here is it says that when you're looking to kind of a modern day restriction, so, you know, you can't carry guns in sensitive places or you need a this XYZ training or permit, any kind of restriction on the Second Amendment right, as that right was defined in Heller McDonald, what the state or what the court should be doing is trying to look to a historical analog, whether it's from like the 1700s, 1800s, kind of um, to kind of try to see what whether um, as a historical analog, this would have been permissible at that time, and then try to kind of transpose that to the present. So the basic argument that Professor Barnett and Professor Lund make in this essay is that this test is ridiculously easily manipulative, and I think they're totally correct about that. And what they argue is that the way that the, the Bruin case should play out in the lower courts when it comes to kind of infringements on the right to bear arms, as the Bruin court defines it, is a better way to look at it is through the lens of the purpose of the Second Amendment, which, as Heller correctly says, is this individual right to to keep and bear arms. The reason that I found this essay, again, this is very kind of niche in the weeds, a nerd. The reason that I personally found this essay compelling is that this kind of restoration of some semblance of purposivism or intentionalism when it comes to constitutional interpretation is very much part of kind of my whole common good originalism project, um, which I'm speaking about here in Chicago this week as well, which is basically trying to kind of encourage legal conservatives to think more about kind of the telos or what, you know, Blackstone would have called the ratio legis, the reason of the law, as opposed to this kind of overly within the four corners of the page kind of extra or uh, ultra textual kind of positivist conception of it. So I told you that was very in the weeds, but you were forewarned. <laughs> I'll do something more 30,000 foot to, to compensate for Josh going down into the weeds. Um, one thing I've been thinking about since the State of the Union address is, is almost uh, to Inez's point, like there's something really deeply nefarious happening on an administrative bureaucratic level um, in the Biden administration that he's kind of coding um, with this almost populist sheen. Uh, so I don't want that to get lost in all of this, but I also feel like we should uh, appreciate maybe the last president, and I said this earlier in the episode, maybe the last president to democratic president to be able to get away with talking about building back pride in America while we can, um, because I don't know that that moment will happen again. I cannot see very many Democrats coming up and sort of being unapologetically uh, pro-American. I mean, Obama couldn't even do it, um, but being so unapologetically pro-American, specifically writing a speech, having a speech written, I should say, uh, that goes out of its way to try and muster pride in the country, to try to claim at least you're putting America first on a signaling level. Um, there's there's something I think that, that feels about to be lost that that may be increasingly rare uh, from Democrats or anyone on the on the list um, because man that is uh, exactly where we should be as a country we need to have pride we need to understand that we're in a sort of collective thing together and it just I, I cannot see many other Democrats, especially in the future, um, prioritizing that. And so, uh, and, and by the way, downplaying or, or trying not to mention and signal on all of these cultural issues. Um, again, we know what he's doing under the under the hood. Um, and Nez has explained that very well in, in many different respects. And uh, we talk about that a lot. But 
um, at least on the signaling level that they feel they, they have to, that they feel there's a need to be patriotic and pro-American. Um, I think, you know, what, what worries me is when uh, they stop doing that and when the base demands that they stop doing that because people are getting really down on this country. Um, and that's not to say everybody, but a big chunk of the country is getting very down on the country, is pessimistic, and they've been conditioned to think that way um, by the sort of elite culture. So that, that's my uh, happy and cheerful final thought. Yeah, shouldn't uh, Biden's Democrat colleagues have howled when he was talking about restoring pride in America? Don't we have nothing to be proud of in our history? And of course, the irony here is, you know, despite the fact that his agenda completely conflicts with, uh, I guess, by his standards, soaring rhetoric, this is a person whose family has sold out this country to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. And, and that brings me to uh, my final thought, which is just a couple uh, items for your radar uh, as we're recording this today on Wednesday, the House Oversight Committee is having a hearing on Twitter's suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story. Uh, Vijaya Gade, Yoel Roth, James Baker, who was kind of a Zelig-like figure in almost all of the scandals around FBI slash DOJ, hyperpoliticization and weaponization, and then on the big tech side as well as a Twitter executive, are among those testifying uh, as I kind of tweeted about this in real time, as I was watching it earlier this morning, I think we're going to see in these hearings a lot more revealed about the anti-speech slash totalitarian nature of our elected representatives who, who have helped create a censorship regime through the use of assets like Twitter. Then we'll learn perhaps about kind of the fascistic element of Twitter working with the government hand in hand to effectuate that censorship regime. And then Thursday of this week, I believe is supposed to be the first hearing of the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government, which will feature, among others, Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, as well as Tulsi Gabbard, uh, plus a former FBI official who's written very critically about what has happened to that institution, Thomas Baker, and then last but not least, Jonathan Turley. Looking forward to these hearings, but also my expectations are quite low. We already know through open source reporting and the like how corrupted these institutions are. And the next question is, how will those who have corrupted them be punished and what can be done to effectuate massive reforms within them to stop them from being weaponized against the American people ever again and eviscerating the rule of law in this country? So again, my expectations are quite low, but perhaps there will be some interesting revelations to come from these committee efforts. Uh, and with that, on behalf of Josh, Emily, and Inez, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.